Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina and Tim, how is it going? David, it's going great. Sounds like you have a cold. Oh yeah, I am stuffed up and sniffly and I apologize for any noises that come out of my come through the microphone during the recording of this episode. <laughs> like this. Podcast <laughs> Circe's close reads is not responsible for any sniffling that comes through the microphone. <laughs> during your it's brutal right now over here. I'm just I'm just on the tail end of a cold. Yeah, the I al- mean, the allergies turned into cold. I've never before and... experienced uh, pollen mixed with snow. This is <laughs> yeah. Did you guys get snow? It snowed, and I was like, okay, maybe that's going to calm down the pollen. And so I went outside to enjoy the snow and immediately started sneezing and got a headache. And I was like, well, this is weird. (laughs) Oh, dear. Well, we got snow, and then we woke up to snow in the morning, and it was big fat flakes, got a couple inches, and by 3 o'clock it was melted completely. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've never quite seen that before. I've seen it melt the next day, but I've never quite seen it gone by, like, lunchtime. Especially when it was that much snow. But anyway, we are here to discuss Flannery O'Connor and her story of View of the Woods. Um, and we thought we had gotten dark with Flannery O'Connor before. We have taken it to another lower level of dark. I feel like, you know, our our our, our listenership, I was going to say viewership, our listenership is going to rise up in rebellion against us if we keep making them read these stories. <laughs> Well, I Maybe hope we should. Should we give a caveat, David, at the beginning? Like, if you're going to skip one from the collection, everything that rises must converge. This is the one that you can skip, and you still can get your Boy Scout badge at the end of the, you know, complete collection. Um. Okay. So, let's see. What I'm trying to make sure that I before we do that, we got to make sure that. Well, I mean, the comforts of home has its moment. I don't know. It's just Flannery O'Connor. <laughs> but I actually think that no, enter at your own risk. Yeah, I actually think that um, that I wouldn't skip this one. I think this is actually a really good story, and uh, it's grim. You know, O'Connor admitted that herself. Angelina and I were just talking before the show while we were waiting for you, Tim. That uh, she wrote this in 1956. She was about 31, 32, and she admitted that she didn't think it was going to be accepted by some of the people who accepted her stories usually because of how grim it was. Um, really? So she submitted it to Harper's Harper's Bazaar, which was kind of the, one of the preeminent, um, you know, story publishing magazines over the time. And of course, publishing a short story in a magazine at the time was a big deal. It's different than it is now. The short story was this was the heyday of the short story in mm. in the journal, and um, it was one, it was in some ways it was bigger than the novel. And um, such a shame that that's not so anymore, right? Like I would totally buy a magazine if it had awesome stories in it. Yeah, I mean, there are still ma- the Image Journal, the um, <laughs> no, the that's New Yorker, true. They, they do. still publish them, but we don't have the we don't have a um, a taste for them the same way the people did then. And you know, I, you know, that's one of the reasons why I like reading a collection like this. But anyway, so she she sent it to Harper's Bazaar, which published a lot of her stories, and they rejected it, and she expected them to because of how grim it was. Um, it eventually was published the next year in the Partisan Review, which was at the time I think a little bit smaller, but um, you know, she she knew it was a little dark. Um, at least on the surface. Uh, well, I mean, really throughout, even if you get under the surface. But um, what were your first impressions of this one, Tim, besides just that it was dark? Had you read it before? I, I had never read it before, and you guys are going to laugh, but I just got to be... I wondered if Mary Fortune was not a real flesh and blood. Okay, kid. I wondered that too! Okay, good. I'm not crazy. <laughs> you 
You might be, but we might both be. <laughs> I totally, I totally wondered that. I wondered if she was a, a figment of his imagination, a projection. Yes. Yes. Like his his inner struggle. I wondered if she was Absolutely. real. There were several points where I stopped and thought, does anybody else in this scene see her? Is anybody else interacting yes. with her? Uh, is it just him? Yeah, yeah. I thought the same thing. Well, okay, so, so why? Little... Go go, in, go into why you felt like that. Like, what are some of the specific things in the story that led you to feel that way? You want to go first, Angelina, or you it, want me to? I, no, go ahead. I, I actually start. think this is really interesting, and I think it's very possible, and I've got a few few reasons why, too. So go, go ahead first, Tim. Um... The fact the narrator tells us over and over how deeply connected grandfather and granddaughter are. Almost all of their conversations, except for around the dinner table, are private conversations. Um, when he decides, when the grandfather decides that he is now, in fact, um, going to sell the lot and block Mary Fortune's view of the woods, which is where the title, where the story gets its name, a rupture occurs. Um, and the rupture just, it, it seems like the rupture is between himself and him. And like, I don't know. No, no, go with that. That's it. He's like some guilty conscience. Yes. Right. Conscience. Cause then that morning he wakes up and she's not there. Right. Right. And she like, there are just some peculiar things like, doesn't it say that she would wake up and she would sit on his chest in the yes, morning? Yes, yes. And he's yes. an older man. That's and we're like a conscience. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. And, and she's his mirror, which I'm, you know, with the kinds of literature I read, I'm always looking for doubling and mirrors. And I mean, in medieval literature, that's a big thing, right? And uh, so I kept thinking she's his mirror, right? She's his mirror image. Uh, they look alike, they walk alike, they're built alike. You know, she talks yes. like an old man, she holds herself like an old man. Um, but someone does see her, though, right? So there is the there is that moment at, well, the, at the gas station, right? right? Or, I was going to say that, yeah. The little boy, he she comes outside, the little boy says she got in a car with someone she called Daddy. That's true, yeah. Now, the biggest thing for me, though, the thing that, and might be for you too, Tim, the thing that got me thinking this is not really happening, this is in his head, was that she would deny being beaten by her dad. Yep, yep. Yeah. I was going to ask right. you guys what you made of that. I kept thinking it's not really happening, that this there's some kind of projection going on in his mind, that he's angry with the dad for what he, for Pitts, for what he perceives is happening to this little girl, whether it's his conscience, his child self you know, the future, whatever she represents. She represents all of that, I think. Um, and of course... But, yeah, he seems to have some kind of animosity toward Pitts that is not connected with any action we actually see happening in the story, right? Right, so he right. Pitts and he wants to punish Pitts for what he thinks Pitts is doing to Mary, but Mary denies that anything happened. And, and of course, so O'Connor leaves this open to us because any of the beatings that are supposedly supposed to have happened happen out in the woods... The woods. And, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, it's not like her siblings or her mother ever see it happen. The only person who ever sees it happen is him the one time when he falls. Yes, and he, that's and right. And he attacks his daughter over that, right? He says, you're not stopping it. And she says, you're not stopping it. Uh-huh. Which uh -huh. is the that, That's very vague. That's very open-ended, you know. What exactly is he not stopping? Here, can I read one passage? Just this is more fodder for the fire. She had a head of thick, very fine sand-colored hair, the exact kind he had had when he had any, and grew straight and was cut just above the eye, eyes and down the sides of her cheeks to the tips of her ears so that it formed, read this, so that it formed a kind of door opening onto the central part of her face. Yeah. Her glasses were oh, silver yeah. print like his, and she even walked the way that he did stomach forward with a careful abrupt gait something between a rock and a shuffle I she mean, draws attention to the glasses a couple of times in the story and that's of course that's a very mirror imaging thing too and and then at the end yeah, 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 when great. she jumps on yeah, him he breaks, right? she tells him to take the glasses take off. the glasses off and and she jumps on him and she seems to have a quite a bit of physical strength for a nine-year-old girl right for this to yes. be an actual fight well he is but an old then, man well yeah with a heart still, problem i mean <laughs> 
I don't know. I wasn't that tough at nine years old to take on my grandpa and knock him down. But uh, but then when she's on top of him, there's that line, pale identical eye looked into pale identical eye. Yes, right. You know, it's this, it's this. So they're having this moment. There's this doubling. I don't know. I feel like he's fighting with himself. Oh, I do too. Okay, so the, one, the, the counterexample that David gave seems to be the strongest reason to not say well they didn't i mean there is the scene like angelina just brought up with the mother too so like they they have an they have an interaction about her getting beaten and there's no way that we could read those scenes well i gotta as... look back now i gotta look back and see where what he actually says to the mom because if he's just using pronouns you know who knows what was really happening there yeah we could have a whole fight club scenario here we could have a whole fight club scenario is it Brad Pitt? Is it Edward Norton? We don't know. <laughs> that is the most fun movie to watch when you already know the ending, man. It is so well done. But don't that even movie start. is so bad. What? Okay, don't even start. I also really like the book. Jo- Josh Gibbs and I are are in complete agreement that that movie is terrible. I know. And so I some talked about this with him. Yep. Sometime we're gonna have to have a Angelina, Josh, Tim, David debate about Vice Club. Um. But then I'd have to watch it again, and I have no interest in doing that. Um, Ooh, really? You really hate that movie? Oh, it's terrible. Um, Oh, I think it's a brilliant indictment of the loss of masculinity in our culture and consumerism. But boom, okay, we'll move on. Yeah, but bad things can have good ideas in them. Um, This is true. (laughs) This is totally true. Okay, I'm trying to find the passage where he talks to the mom to see. It's the dinner. It's the the dinner passage. Um, But Angelina, you're you're, you're, – while you're looking, I just want to say that your observation about the glasses being mirroring is really interesting because um, when they have the fight at the end, like like you mentioned, it says, I don't want no sass, he said, and started toward her. His knees felt very unsteady, as if they might turn either backward or forward. She moved exactly one step back, and keeping her eye on him steadily, removed her glasses and dropped them behind a small rock near the tree he had told her to get ready against. Take off your glasses, she said. Don't give me orders, he said in a high voice and slapped awkwardly at her ankles with his belt. And then she was on him so quickly that he could not have recalled which blow he felt first. Um, And then later on, she like specific, his glasses fly to the side and she says, I told you to take them off. She growled without pausing. Mm -hmm. And and that would be a perfect example of Flannery O'Connor using glasses as a representative of someone finally like making the choice to see or to not see. Yes, yes, yes. Because he, this is a character who is very deliberately denying the moment of grace. He's rejecting it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I like that. Okay. So I found the passage and it's all pronouns. It's all, you could read this many ways. Okay. Read it to us, Angela. Okay. So, um, Pitts gets up, love, come with me, and I love this out. stuff with when she does this with pronouns. Like it's a very this is a big Flannery O'Connor thing. So as you're reading, uh, you like you all of her stories, you can read things so many different ways because of how she uses pronouns. Huh. Pitts got up and said, "Come with me," and turned and walked out, loosening his belt as he went. And to the old man's complete despair, she slid away from the table and followed him, almost ran after him, out the door and into the truck behind him, and they drove off. This cowardice affected Mister Fortune as if it were his own. Oh, boom. It made him uh-huh. physically sick. He beats an, in- an innocent child, he said to his daughter, who was apparently still prostrate at the end of the table. And not one of you lifts a hand to stop him. You ain't lifted yours neither, one of the boys said in an undertone. And there was a general mutter from that chorus of frogs. I'm an old man with a heart condition, he said. I can't stop an ox. She put you up to it, his daughter murmured in a languid, listless tone, her head rolling back and forth on the rim of her chair. She puts you up to everything. I mean, it, it, who knows what they're talking about? <laughs> it doesn't say Mary, and no one looks up when he walks out of the room with Mary. That's the, weird. That's the mom weird. does it. Nobody moves from the table. It is weird. Does Okay, here's another question. Does Pitts ever speak? Not except to say, come with me. Yeah. So you're Tim. So you're saying it's possible that everybody in this is a figment of his imagination. No, no, no. I was. It made me remember the line that Mary Fortune has to him about how she's a pits. She's not a fortune. Oh yeah, at the end. So I just I toyed with the idea. 
I toyed with the idea that what's happening inside of the grandfather is this kind of like wrestling with himself, not, <coughs> excuse me, you can tell I'm struggling to articulate this. I really don't know what I think about this story. I'm really struggling. <laughs> Maybe what is happening inside of him is some sort of war between his higher self, fortune, his lower self, the pit. Oh, I like yeah. that. I like that. Because yeah. I was, oh yeah, I was yeah. thinking about Names always thing. mean something to it, O'Connor. Right, right. And so the fact well, that and- we hear so little from Mr. Pitts and that she, Mary Fortune, ultimately sides with the man who beats her, or does he really beat her, does he even exist, is if, if, the grandfa- if Mary is representative of the grandfather's kind of like inner self, then the grandfather has just discovered that his inner self is actually like it's low. Oh, this is so good. Okay, this is so good. This is let's good. Go to, this l- is good. Um, let's go to the last, the end of the, you know, the last two pages. Wait, wait. Before you say that, let me take you back to the first paragraph. Because how uh, okay, is he making his fortune? How is he making his fortune in the first paragraph? He's digging a pit. Ooh, that's great. That's great observation. This is called a close read, guys. <laughs> hey, so but at the end, you know, right after the fight, like right before he well smashes her and commits suicide. Yeah. Um which I want to talk about by the way. Um it so on mine it's page 80. If you're using the the collection that's just everything that rises, it's on page 80. Um but he says the okay, so so they're fighting, right? And it's then It's 355 if you're in the big white one. Okay, so she says um on the previous page she says she paused her her face exactly on top of his pale identical eye looked into pale identical eye this is what angelina read have you had enough she asked and then this is amazing because this is what you were just saying the old man looked up into his own image mm-hmm. it was triumphant and hostile you've been huh. you've been whipped it said by me and then it added bearing down on each word and i it it you got yep. that yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. i noticed that change when i was reading it yep. i was like oh this is something else is going on here because now yep. it's it so it's it's now is the image speaking. It's not her. It's an image speaking, and it transitions here. Um, yes. It was triumphant and hostile. You've been whipped, it said, by me. And then it added, bearing down on each word, and I'm pure pits. So that image itself is like the pits that you're talking about there, Tim. Like how yes. the, the image that, that whipped him is, the, is that lower self. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was reading, I thought, this is it. This is the moment of grace. He's being asked, have you had enough? Yep. And then he rejects it. In the, yeah, because she loosens her grip just a bit, right? This mm-hmm. is, so it switches back to she. So she loosens her grip, which is, which is in a way is like merciful, right? It's like saying. Yeah, it's like, yeah, are you submitting are, to are, this? Yeah, are you submitting? But then he gets hold of her throat in like in one yeah. moment. She doesn't even like she. This is all one sentence for O'Connor. In the pause, she loosened her grip, and he got hold of her throat. And with a sudden surge of strength, he managed to roll over and reverse their positions. So that he was looking down into the face that was his own, but had dared to call itself Pitts. Mm-hmm. Now, this totally fits with what I was saying to you, David, at the beginning, um, before we started the show. Yeah. Which was that I, when I started reading the story, I knew right away the little girl was going to die. It was foreshadowed. But I thought she was going to die from the bulldozer. And it wasn't until I got to the end that I realized the grandfather is the bulldozer. But that fits the whole pit thing. He's the thing digging the pit. And, you know. In the, in the name of progress, in the name of yes, fortune. Yeah. Exactly. And I was going to say, we often think of the future as something you can't stop, right? That's just going to wash over you. It's going to run over you whether you can stop it or not. Like a bulldozer. The future just bulldozes. And he kind of jumps on board with that in order to just bulldoze through into the future, into progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just finishing what you just read, David. So after he, you know, smashes her head against the rock, he says, you know, triumphantly, right? There's not an ounce of pits in me. Now look how she switches it back. He continued to stare at his conquered image. Yep. Until he perceived that though it was silent, there was no look of remorse on it. He, so he just wants it to not to not have a look of remorse anymore. That's interesting. He just, yeah, he doesn't want to feel that guilty conscience for what he's doing. And that's what she is, right? And, and this is the first time that they have ever been on the outs is over the view for the woods, right? Like, And he's like, you're crazy. Right. It's just stupid woods. 
and she digs in her heels, and this is the first time they have not been of one mind. And they've been of completely one mind. I mean, the opening scene, they're kind of almost finishing each other's thoughts. I thought it was an adult woman. I thought it was his wife at the beginning. Did you? Uh-huh. I didn't, I didn't think that, but I thought that there was something peculiar. I mean, she would – she put his feet on his shoulders when she was sitting on the car – doesn't that happen? I just thought, that's a, yeah, that's a yeah. peculiar pose. Well, I mean, I didn't think that was the wife at that point. But just like in the first couple of paragraphs, Mr. Fortune and Mary Fortune, I thought they were married. And then I'm like, oh, oh, she's, oh, the, oh. she's the granddaughter. But there is definitely this kind of of one mind thing mm. happening. And, of course, there's all that, you know, he's telling her, don't get so close to the edge. You're going to fall in. And she's like, you're going to fall in. And I was like, they're both going to die at the end of this story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's foreshadowing all throughout like that they're always on the edge of something bad happening right and so this pit that he's insisting on digging in the name of fortune and progress is going to kill all of them it's going Mm. to they're gonna proverbs they're gonna fall into the pit they dug right yeah so here's the the next question Mm -hmm. the next question is why does his effort to sell off the piece of property, bring on progress, block the view of the woods. Why is that making him more of a pits? I mean, because ultimately, isn't he? It, it, he's afraid that if he does not kind of um, live into the progress and make efforts toward being a man of progress, that he will recede into being a pits. Does that question make sense? No, it does make sense. He seems to be weirdly concerned about the future and yet not concerned about the future generation that lives with him. Yeah. And ends up, of course, destroying that future generation. Mary, all his hope was in there. She's his heir, and he destroys her, which is what he's doing to the land and the heritage and you know, there's a sense, I think, in which he's cutting himself off both from the past and the future in what he's doing, but he can't see it. I mean, who puts a gas station in their front yard? I mean, this is I like know, not, even, this is not even close. This is not like, well, we have 6,000 acres and honestly, you know, we can lose a few hundred and we'll be set for life. And what's the big deal? I mean, this, she's she's not being subtle here, right? Let's put a gas station in the front yard. It'll be awesome. Can you the the end of the first section? It's like actually midway through the story, but it's the first break we get, I think, and it begins with several times during the afternoon. Do you guys see that? I'm looking. It's probably looking. right midway through the story or so. It's like, yeah, well, maybe a little more than midway. Well, I missed it the first time through. Yeah, I'm not seeing a break actually in mine at all. Well, anyway, I'll just read this to you then, and okay. you guys can you guys can you, you'll catch where I'm going with this because this is where he really she O'Connor really goes in on the the idea of like progress and modernism and and kind of a critique of it of like yeah what it means what happens when you buy all in to to modernism and this is also I believe going to tie into the stuff we've talked about with her um, her medieval sensibilities. See if I can read without like having to. Oh, I just found it. Uh, Angelina, it's top of three forty eight. Ah, okay. Thank you. Several times during the afternoon, he got up from his bed and looked out the window across the lawn, quote, lawn, to the line of woods she said they wouldn't be able to see anymore. Every time he saw the same thing, woods. Not a mountain, not a waterfall, not any kind of planted bush or flower, just woods. The sunlight was woven through them at that particular time of the afternoon so that every thin pine trunk stood out in all its nakedness. A pine trunk is a pine trunk, he said to himself, and anybody that wants to see one don't have to go far in this neighborhood. Every time he got up and looked out, he was reconvinced of his wisdom in selling the lot. The dissatisfaction it caused Pitts would be permanent, but he could make it up to Mary Fortune by buying her something. There's another, like, that's a really interesting idea. He thinks he can make it up to her by just buying her something. And, of course, he tries right. to later. Oh, that's very modern, right? We see how, <laughs> yeah. we see how that goes when he tries to buy her something. Yeah, exactly. With grown people, a road led either to heaven or hell. But with children, there were always stops along the way where their attention could be turned with a trifle. 
The third time he got up to look at the woods, it was almost six o'clock, and the gaunt trucks appeared to be raised in a pool of red light that gushed from the almost hidden sun setting behind them. The old man stared for some time, as if for a prolonged in instant he were caught up out of the rattle of everything that led to the future, and were held there in the midst of an uncomfortable mystery that he had not apprehended before. He saw it in his hallucination, which is an interesting choice of words given our conversation, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as if someone were wounded behind the woods and the trees were bathed in blood. After a few minutes, this unpleasant vision was broken by the presence of Pitt's pickup truck grinding to a halt below the window. He returned to his bed and shut his eyes, and against the closed lids, hellish red trucks <clears throat> rose up in a black wood. Um, what do you guys think of that? Well, I marked that passage, too. I mean, I don't know that I know what it means, but it struck me as very important. I mean, anytime I see the word mystery, I'm going <laughs> to going to jump on that especially Relative. uncomfortable mystery and then yeah hallucination so either he's either he's having some kind of moment right where he's having some insight into things but he's dismissing it like a modern but of this is just hallucination right I'm, I'm not really seeing anything let's get back to brass tacks right you know money in the bank that's what's real kind of thing so either that's happening which that's how I read it the first time of course now I'm thinking she's given us a hint that the whole thing is just his own interior struggle with what he's doing and, and the fact that he doubles down on it. Right. And, and that he takes all this delight and justification in the fact that this will pain Pitts, who is married to his daughter. This will hurt his daughter. Yeah. Who he so has so much animosity toward for what? Because she does her duty toward him. Because she married a Pitts. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's where the animosity is coming no, from. No, you're right. That is where it comes from. But then, like, the, he mocks her in his mind because she came to live with him and took care of him. Yeah, I think though that we have. This, oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, I do think we have a class thing going on again, though. This com this thing we have in O'Connor, where you've got the pits and the fortunes. Like, um, he's looking down on on them, and you've got O'Connor is very um, unforgiving to people who are not who are who lack charity towards people who are of lesser circumstances. Mm. Yes, um, but it's particularly disturbing in this story because it's his child. Right, right. This isn't just, you know, the, 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 the squatters on the property. This is his daughter. These are his grandchildren. And the fact that he can't even remember which daughter this is. <laughs> yeah. You know? I, no. It's either my third or fourth oh. daughter. I'm actually not sure. I mean, he's clearly not very what is connected wrong to with you. Children. Well, there's that. But I also think that if we're gonna be, if I'm, if I can offer a, maybe a point of sympathy towards him, I suppose, uh, I do think that there is whether or not he is actually imagining her, he, mentally there is something going on here. Like he doesn't know which daughter it is. It talks about hallucinations. There's enough things going on here that I think O'Connor is expecting us to believe that whatever's going, something is going on inside of him. There's a poison mm -hmm. inside of him, so to speak. And it's it incapacitating him in some way, David. Well, I think it, at minimum spiritually he's broken, right? Because yeah. she, you know, it even says that she, early on in the story, in a in a way that is a little more direct than you get from O'Connor most of the time, that that she is more spiritually advanced than he is. So there's something she broken. being the daughter. Yeah, yeah. So like at the very beginning of the story, that's the kind of description you don't get. It says she had to a singular degree his intelligence, his strong will, and his push and drive. Though there were 70 years difference in their ages, the spiritual difference between them was slight. She was the only member of the family he had any respect for. So, like... Oh, the granddaughter. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the granddaughter. Yeah, sorry. So there's... Sorry, sorry, sorry. So, but, so there's something going on inside of him that is... That is... That's poisoned. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and I think... I believe mentally, mentally there's something wrong with him. And that's what O'Connor is getting at. But also, like, I think the stuff about the trees... Where he says, every time he saw the same thing, woods, not a mountain, not a waterfall, not any kind of planted bush or flower, just woods. And then he says, a pine tree is a, a pine trunk is a pine trunk. And anybody that wants to see one don't have to go far in this neighborhood. This goes into that idea that we were talking about, like that metaphysical realism that we talked mm -hmm. about. How he sees the spiritual and the physical worlds as separated, right? Like he doesn't see the spiritual. He is too spiritually immature to see the spiritual in the world around him. And to mm -hmm. see what and there's but there's the, but the people around him, they value uh, 
these things on almost a spiritual level that he cannot understand. And that that's one of the things I think that dif- that O'Connor is arguing differentiates you know the modern man who values progress from you know other people. <laughs> progress had always been his ally. Boy, that's an ironic statement. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm looking at the paragraph when Mary is born, and I'm rethinking all the things we've talked about. And I mean, that is curious, right? They when 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 the daughter's pregnant, they tell him they're going to name the baby after him. And he has a fit, right? No way. But then the baby's born, and it's a girl, and he had seen that even at the age of one day she bore his unmistakable likeness. Okay, this is not possible, right? <laughs> Newborn babies, you're not like, well, she looks just well, like this. Well, actually, they kind of do, do look like, like old people. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's something to that, right? It's it. What draws him to her is that she looks like him, right? And so then he says... Let's name her after my mother who died when he was born. So I think there's something to that, too. So you have both her being the past and the future, right? She's the mother and she's the granddaughter. Go ahead. I was going to say, it's just such a... A a writer as careful as O'Connor would not put all these clues in drawing the parallels between the two characters, Mary Fortune and the grandfather. That being said, it's still kind of a slippery doubling. The fact that Mary gets spoken to, it seems like other people see her. It's Well, well couldn't she be both? Yeah. I mean, can't she really yes. be the granddaughter and he's also projected all this stuff onto her? Yeah, I think so. And I think that, you know, for O'Connor, somebody mentioned that one time O'Connor somebody on the Facebook page I should say mentioned that uh one time O'Connor went to a to a reading and afterwards you know some some people asked her questions and it, and I think this is from Mystery and Manners and she says you know some nice young young teacher asked me what the black hat meant in uh a good man is hard to find and she said well it was just a black hat sometimes not everything has to mean something um and that's a you know classic uh, writer response, right? Because uh, no, don't even believe that for a second. Yeah, I know. Well, the problem the problem is that a writer has to say that, right? Because as soon as a thoughtful writer gives an answer, everyone else stops wondering. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So it's not really in the best interest of the work itself to start giving answers to everything. But right, but you <clears> cannot <throat> use that quote then to say we're reading too much into this story. Yeah, I agree. That that, that quote cannot be taken at face value. Well. Yeah, so what I was going to say is um, there's, mul- there's multiple levels to this kind of stuff because on the one hand, you can have – you can look at things just as the story themselves. And this is a really tightly written story. It's mm-hmm. one of her most efficient, well-crafted stories, um, even as it's dark and disturbing at times. Um, but on the other hand, O'Connor also has all these layers of things going on that, that can't help but mean something. And so I think you're right, Angela, that it can be both. I think she can be – a she could be his granddaughter who is a lot like him and who he has this troubled relationship with. Um, and that he, but it could also be someone that he projects onto, um, mm-hmm. but it, both so, the spiritual and the physical happening at the same time. Right. And so I think then if you look at it that way, then the moment when she's displeased with him, that becomes this trigger for his internal struggle. Oh uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, like that's the turning point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And he tries to soothe it over with the various ways that people try to soothe their conscience, right? I'll buy you something pretty. And it doesn't work. And he keeps doubling down, thinking she'll come around. I mean, oh, gosh, I just, I have lived this scenario with someone in my life who's just, was so convinced all the time that they could just keep doubling down and moving forward and I would come around, you know? That does not work just as a relationship technique. <laughs> <laughs> It's not, I, not ideal. Just, just so you know. <laughs> I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll try even harder. <laughs> to be but, irrational. Yeah, you just you push harder and harder, right? Like with like a bulldozer. 
You know, I really liked the story. I had also never read it before. This was my first time through. And uh, the first thing that struck me, well, I mean, I already said that I thought at the beginning it was very clear that they were both going to die. So I was kind of preparing myself for that. But just in terms of how it was written, I thought it had such a different tone and flavor than other Flannery O'Connor stories. Um, It was was missing a lot of the really exaggerated grotesqueness. People Mm. are just kind of normal weird in this story. Yeah. Uh, and so I started reading it, and it, it felt very much like I was reading a Wendell Berry story, and then in the middle of it, Stephen King showed up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that. And I, uh, Stephen King, <clears throat> Stephen King, uh, I th- as I recall, I could be making this up, but as I recall, he, he's a big O'Connor fan. And that would not surprise huge, me. <laughs> big influence on him. And like his prose, especially in his better works, especially on his earlier works, uh, is very similar to her prose and the way he tells the story and all and like the callbacks and the layers and the characters meaning different things um his novel i was telling you this before the show usually his novel salem's lot reminds me a lot of flannery o'connor huh. <clears throat> it's a really good book by the way i mean you have to like vampires and scary stuff but um it's a really good book it's, it's long but what do you guys go ahead go ahead i was gonna say do you do you guys think so david and i were texting yesterday off the air about the story and David mentioned that it was an indictment. Yes, during my first... class, I want to say. That was very distracting. <laughs> was your phone buzzing <laughs> in the middle of your lecture? I knew it was y'all and I even said to the class, they're talking about the book without me. This is not <laughs> <laughs> The hazards of being an educator. <laughs> I was about to pause the class and be like, just a second. <laughs> hey, how's that class going, by the way? Oh, the Tammy Lucia class is going so well. We're having a good time in there. Good. Go ahead, Tim. We were talking about David mentioned that um, this story is Flannery O'Connor's indictment of modernism. Yeah, that's what um, I, th- I think so anyway. And so d- did you guys – is that a new trajectory for her? Is that a different trajectory than what we've seen in the other Flannery O'Connor stories that we've read? Well, Sally Fitzgerald said uh, – because I looked it up after the book because I was like, what, what, what just happened? <laughs> And uh, which I kind of think is like the appropriate response at the end of a Flannery O'Connor story. Apparently, we're all united in that. <laughs> but um, that's why they're so discussable. So to speak. it's true. It's true. I, mean, I feel like I understand the story so much better now that we've started talking. So I'm, I'm so glad Tim started the show with, am I crazy? And I jumped right in there and was like, me too. But <laughs> the answer is yes. Yeah. Yes. And yes. You're yes. But we and all, you're right. But we all are. That's the anyway, whole point. Sally Fitzgerald said that this was the first Flannery O'Connor story, and maybe even the only one, where she very deliberately tries to show a character being damned. Oh. Um, so I, I know that felt different, right? You have the mo- so there's no ambiguity. So we see characters in a moment of grace accepting the grace. We see that in several stories. We see a lot of ambiguous uh, endings where we're not sure if they've accepted the grace or not. But this is a story in which the answer is no. Uh, and, and Sally Fitzgerald said that it was particularly challenging because Flannery O'Connor believed that a damnation was a result of a free will choice. And so she was trying to write a story uh, not about doom, right? So this isn't like, you know, a Shakespeare tragedy, right, where you just have this sense of doom. Right, fate. Um, and, right. So there's, it's, it can't be inevitable what happens to him. He can't be a victim of it. It has to be that he makes a deliberate choice. Uh, and I do think that's what happens when, when you know, the image says to him, have you had enough? Yep. Yeah, yeah. responds with anger and no, he has not had enough. He's been doubling down this whole story. He's going to double down. He's going to triple down. I will kill the thing that makes me feel this way. Mm-hmm. That's tough. Yeah, and I think what she's kind of saying, though, is that in the end, that's what buying all in to – above all to progress um, – and to the modern way of life is that's what it leads to it. It's a sort of suicide because in the end, mm-hmm. I, I think that's kind of what happens is he commits suicides. Um, it, he, he drowns, but I guess we should read the ending, huh? Do you happen to know if Wendell Berry reads Flannery O'Connor? Like, does he have thoughts about this? Let's call him. <laughs> yeah, I know you got his number on speed. Just put him on speaker. I'll behave. I promise. Uh, I'll come. <laughs> <laughs> I'll call him later. I, <laughs> that would be pretty <laughs> If 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 he answered the phone, which is unlikely actually, if he answered the phone and there were three of us on the phone wanting to badger him about Flannery O'Connor, that might be the end of our relationship. Can't 
we list, at least listen to his voicemail? The, we probably – I don't think they have a voicemail. Uh, probably what we should do is uh, I should write him a letter and ask him, and then we can see what he says. Um, <laughs> we have That's to be prepared. There, man. We have to be prepared to treat it as an authoritative answer. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like if if Except Wendell if he Berry comes back and says something you. awful like that hack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, I think he's written about her in a couple of his essays. Um, has he? I'll have to. We'll have to look at the glossary of some of his books of essays. Can I tell you guys the a quick index, story? Rather. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, I told David last week that my dad played for John Wooden. John Wooden is widely acclaimed as the greatest college basketball coach of all time. I saw that humble brag you put on Facebook. Oh, it wasn't a humble brag. It was a brag. It was a brag. The winningest coach in the history of the world, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So John Wooden came over to the house, my parents' house, um, when the Final Four was in Atlanta. See, this is this is so appropriate. The Final Four, the, the, the tournament is beginning in two days. This is a little tie-in for seasonal events. John Wooden came over to our house and had lunch with us and sat, oh my gosh, he sat with my dad and myself and my brother-in-law and we watched the final four games. So my dad and I have always watched basketball games together, you know, and we're always kind of talking strategy. Oh, I think they're running that press because their point guard, they think is a weak ball handler. You know, we're always talking about why we think the coach is doing this or the other coach is doing that. So, of course, we're watching the Final Four game, and I just start doing what I ordinarily do with my dad. I start talking strategy, and something rolls out of my mouth, and it occurred to me in the middle of it, me talking strategy, like, if John Wooden disagrees with me, <laughs> I am wrong. It's like his opinion versus my opinion. It was a total appeal to authority. Like, I'm about Absolutely. to get spanked. Right if now. I get this wrong, if or if he disagrees with me, I just found out that I was wrong about that strategy, and, it, and so I had a similar thought. So what became of it? Did he? What did he say? Parent. Did he? Did he say? No, anything? no, he actually he kind of concurred with me. He saw something a little bit deeper that I didn't see. No surprise there. But I think he thought that I was on the. Well, that's even better. He was like, "You're on the right track, youngster." Youngster. <laughs> Come sit on my knee. <laughs> Give it 50 more years and you might really see what's happening on when, the court. When was this? It was whenever the Final Four was in Atlanta. I want to say it was the late 90s. Okay. I could humble brag a little bit more, but I will step away from that. And take us back to the broadcast by saying if Wendell Berry disagreed with our take on – you know, I don't know. Even if Wendell Berry disagreed with our take on this story, I think I'd still stick to my guns. I'd say, Mr. Berry, all due respect. I oh, would you? Would you say I that? Would. Absolutely, I would. I well, and, and of course, in reading and interpreting, and you know, exploring fiction is a little bit different than like a strat- strategy in basketball, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, you want to read the end? Sorry, yeah. I, I derailed this a little bit. <laughs> Tim, stop! Just, just rein yourself in. <laughs> Tim, why don't you read for us the last that nice long paragraph there at the end? Then he fell on his back. Yeah. Then he fell on his back and looked up helplessly along bare trunks into the tops of the pines, and his heart expanded once more with a convulsive motion. It expanded so fast that the old man felt as if he were being pulled after it through the woods felt as if he were running as fast as he could with the ugly pines toward the lake. He perceived that there would be a little opening there, a little place where he could escape and leave the woods behind him. He could see it in the distance already, a little opening where the white sky was reflected in the water. It grew as he ran toward it until suddenly the whole lake opened up before him, riding majestically in little corrugated folds toward his feet. He realized suddenly that he could not swim and that he had not bought the boat. On both sides of him, he saw that the gaunt trees had thickened into mysterious dark files that were marching across the water and away into the distance. He looked around desperately for someone to help him, but the place was deserted except for one huge yellow monster which sat to the side as stationary as he was, gorging itself on clay. So... 
Uh, Angelina, I love how you talk about um, the the pronouns because it's really interesting what she does with, with the verbs here too. So um, it talks about his heart expanding. Like I, th- I think you can read this in multiple ways. You could read this as he has a heart attack. So like if you want to just read it that that's – that's how he and dies. She's been referring to that too, right. you know, leading up to this. He keeps feeling the heart expanding. Yep. So you could just read it. He has a heart attack, and that's what kills him, right? Like there's that very specific surface, physical, concrete thing going on there. But then there's also obviously something else going on. And O'Connor is so good at creating those layers. So she, yes, because she talks about um, he perceived that there would be a little opening there, right? So the word would, like it's the idea of like possibility, right? A little mm-hmm. place where he could escape. And leave the woods behind him. Oh, yeah, he yeah. Could, he could see it in the distance already. But then, go move all forward a little bit. It says, it grew as he ran toward it. And it stops. But being look how about... in the middle of that is a giant mirror image, though. It's the water yep. reflecting the sky. So you got the whole mirror thing again. Yeah. And it goes from, like, wood and could and possibility to, like, activity. So, like, it grew as he ran towards it. So you were talking about how he makes the decision, right? He grew, makes the decision to run towards There's an is agency in it, right? It's not just happening mm-hmm. to him anymore. He's actually running towards it. He was running into the water. So it's not just it's not just that he's having a heart attack or whatever, but there's a there's a decision that he's there's making. A choice. In. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and that just speaks to what you're saying there. And of course, there's the mysterious dark files which I don't know exactly what to make of that. The gaunt trees had thickened into mysterious dark files that were marching across the water and away into the distance. That's kind of a military thing, right? Well, I mean, it's darkness. This doesn't sound good for him. He's marching into the dark, and he's scared because right. he wants someone to help him. Yeah, he looks and ironically, the only thing there is to help him is the, the bulldozer. Yeah, he's, everything's, everything is deserted. There's no one to help him except the monster gorging itself on the clay. That that is the most grotesque thing in the story, and the most scary as he was. So we've got doubling again with the grandfather is the bulldozer. You know what's interesting again is we have I mentioned this before, Angelina, that most of the time the descriptions of the people are very like uh, animal like. So um, the uh, the the humans are described as like large bugs or wheezing horses or even hyenas. There's different things like that in the story. As someone, I, I noticed this when I was reading a, an article about it. Um, and then oftentimes the inanimate objects are the ones that are described as humans. So like the environment is described as indifferent or gaunt or sullen. And here you have the, um, the yellow monster gorging itself. So there's like a, there's an kind of active human like thing going on there with it in terms of eating i mean i know that not just humans eat but there's like an there's a almost like a a, a decision a choice being made by it yes stationary mm-hmm, mm-hmm. stationary the as stationary as he was well and, and calling it a monster i mean gosh this this taps into all that medieval stuff as well right so this is not just a modern piece of machinery that's neutral to be used how it will right mm-hmm. it's it's alive and it's dark and it's a monster and the monster at the end of the story appears to have won because it's the only one still standing, right? And it's still gorging itself and he's dead. Well, it's one in that it's still standing, but, you know. Right, right. In, in the end, it, you know. Yeah, I mean, that. I actually, as I say, I think that's reaching. I think it's more that. It, it can't save him, right? He's looking around desperately for someone to save him, and that's the only thing that's there, and it can't save him. This the the closing paragraph gives such illumination to the earlier passage that Angelina read about the kind of incandescent woods. There's something really mysterious about these woods. And now it seems like nature takes its revenge. Yeah, they, they mm-hmm. the woods were alive, and now we see them actively take their revenge upon him. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a great yes. point. Yes, and also right. So that ties in with the title, right? So if the woods represent some kind of transcendent grace, he's not just trying to run from it. You know, he's trying to hide, right? So he's trying to block off the view of the it. woods, right? It's I don't awesome. want to see it. So that's another act of rejection. Whereas the children are very upset. That they don't want that view blocked. Yeah. You know, Woods, as soon as you see Woods as the title in a prominent American 
short story writers. Hey, Tim, you got to go, don't you? I do. Review time at Gutenberg College. Nice. All right. Well, I'll let you say goodbye to the audience, and then Angelina and I will finish up here. Dearest audience, (laughs) (laughs) goodbye. (laughs) Tim, thanks for your time. We will talk to you next time. My pleasure. Bye, Tim. All right. Uh, Angelina, the last thing I was going to say, my final thought is just that anytime you see the word, the idea of woods in a story, and especially by a prominent American short story writer, like that harkens back to the early American writers where, where the woods is this key American theme. We're talking Hawthorne and, and um, you know, uh, Cooper, right? Cooper, Cooper and Poe and the woods being this, this place of possibility, but also of real danger. And, I was going to say, yeah, and mystery, right? So, like, so Hester Prynne goes into the young, woods. Yeah, young, yeah. Young, I'm not a big American person, but I can see that, yeah. Young Goodman Brown, has to. he has this spiritual journey as he's walking yeah. through. Um, that's the Hawthorne story. As he's walking through the woods. And, and uh, you know, the, the woods are not just a, spir- a, a place of physical danger, but of spiritual danger. And you never know what's going to come on the, opposite, on the opposite side or if you're going to make it through. And people... There's always a warning about going through the woods. And it's interesting that O'Connor kind of... I mean, that's Little Red Riding Hood. I mean, that really yeah, taps yeah, yeah, into that's some true. really that's true. old it, stuff. It, well, it does. It goes but back... There's a very Germanic... There's a Germanic yep. influence on that particular region of American uh, literature, too. Yeah, I was going to say, it goes. It, it's not just an American thing. It goes back to the to, to the Germans and beyond that, you know, the, to Norse, Norse literature. And, oh, absolutely, and, absolutely, and, yeah. You know, even like Beowulf and stuff has some wood stuff, as I recall. Um, but you would know better than I would about that. <laughs> oh, but it's interesting because in a way O'Connor kind of appropriates that and it's you know the people are she's given she's suggesting that there's some value to the woods like there's some spiritual something it's more than just a physical place right um, but then on the other hand the woods ultimately as you said kind of take their revenge on on the old man and his, his on fortune and his uh, his quest for progress um, in the end, they're going to win, which, right? Right. Which, which the woods, you know, in a lot of literature, that's that's the that's the tension too. So in the early stories that you're talking about, it's traveling through the woods, but later on, the shift is going to be about you know cutting down the woods, the frontier, and, and that's we get that all, out of Wendell Berry, right? All of all of the implications of that, which are huge, right? And that's that's just a great image and symbol and motif for this idea of progress, and and what it does to things and. You know, the enclosure debate, everything comes into all of that. And so, you know, she's tapping into that too, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the implication is that the woods are going to be cut down at some point, I thought. Yeah, I mean, in the end, that's almost certainly what I think O'Connor's, you know, as a, as the storyteller is kind of accepting that as a reality. And so what happens to us then as a culture when we've cut down all the woods, when we've destroyed all the mystical places? Yeah, yeah, we... I guess it's an act drowned. of suicide. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked this story. I'm so glad we talked about it. I, I feel a lot better about it as we've talked about it. Yeah. I, you know, <clears throat> as you said, this is a story about a person who makes a choice. You know, about, it's a story about a damnation. But it's – and yeah, it's dark. It's it's troubling. When people read it for the first time, they're going to be like, what the heck, you know? And, and But that's the point, right? O'Connor is writing a story about – she's – about something that should we should feel that way about it and she's just she's kind of shouting at us right like what are mm-hmm. we doing um and so i think it's right so is she right saying we, we feel should feel way. should we should we feel that same level of disgust and shock over the fact that he wants to put a gas station in his front yard i mean or is she even kind of saying like what's it going to take to shock us out of this there, there were so many more shocking disturbing things happening in the story but it's not till the end that we really feel uncomfortable i don't know my, I'm well, probably reading too much into it. I don't that. know, but I do think we should ask ourselves, like, at what point are we disturbed, right? I mean, it's right that we're disturbed that he kills the girl, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but as you said, there's a lot more that's going on here that's that's disturbing. Yeah. He's been right? a destructive force all the way through. He's less sympathetic than the other people. Like, you know, a lot of people said they felt sorry for Mrs. May and Julian's mother, and there's a lot more sympathy even in their failures and flaws, yeah, yeah, I think there's less sympathy for this guy here. Yeah, I think so. I think even in O'Connor, there's you mean like maybe like from the storyteller's perspective, from the like, storyteller's yeah. point of view, yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't think she's showing him 
he's not pitiable at any point, right? Like right. Mrs. May and Julian's mother. There are times when you feel sorry, like you, you're frustrated with them because of their behavior and their beliefs, but you also kind of understand a little bit and you feel sorry for them and they feel a little bit trapped by their time period and their upbringing. He feels much more like an active force of destruction, right? Yeah, yeah. He seems very strong, too. He's 79 years old, but he's got like a life energy about him. Yeah, that's true. Same idea, the destructive force. Yeah. That's an interesting, like, that could be another title for the story almost. Like a less, a more direct, less poetic title. Like if you had, if you were telling students or something to try to think of a title, like I could see the destructive force being something that someone could come to. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> like a bulldozer, right? So he's like this bulldozer. He's just bulldozing his way through his life. And it's interesting, like, if you connect to Greenleaf, you got the bull, and then in this one you got the bulldozer. But, yes. But of course, in this one, he chooses. He chooses. You know, makes a different choice, or it, it, there's a different sort of ending than what we get in Green in Greenleaf. Mm-hmm. The a different a different result. Oh, that's good. I wonder if that's why they put them in that order for the for the story. I'm always curious about things like you know, how do you decide the order of songs on an album? How do you decide the order of stories in a short story collection? I mean, they're not arranged chronologically. So, what is the? Do you think they did it on purpose to follow the bull with the bulldozer? That's a good question. I do not know. I wonder if it says in the introduction. <laughs> well, not in mine. Not in the introduction yeah, I have. Yeah. Which is the the one with uh, Sally Fitzgerald. I have the one three by Flannery O'Connor. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's got the violent buried away. Then it's got everything that rises must converge. And then wise blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you probably have a different introduction if you've got the separate short story collection. Well, I think it is by a Fitzgerald, but I think it's by Robert Fitzgerald or something. Oh, okay. So I've got Sally Fitzgerald. Well, her notes so far have been outstanding. She's got like a little paragraph about each of the stories. But I would love to know what was the criteria for arranging the stories. That kind of stuff just always fascinates me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will have to. I wonder if there's a way to find out. We'll have to look it up. Well, hey, any final thoughts before we head out? No, this was fun. That's my final thought. This was fun. I think we did a good job unpacking this because I had no idea what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, I hope that everyone who's listening had feels a little bit, you know, better at least differently about the story after after our conversation. Um, thanks to everyone who's been listening. Please head over to iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts, pod- podcast addict, wherever it is. Leave us a review, either a starred review or a written review. Those those go a long way to helping us be able to make more content, more shows like this. Help us know how many people are listening, all that kind of stuff. Um, if you have not, please head over to Facebook. Type in Close Reads Conversation or close reads podcast podcast I mean. discussion yeah. group <laughs> but if you just type in close reads it comes type up. in close reads yeah <clears throat> sorry i can't talk right now i can't ever talk um <laughs> i mean and that's why you decided to host podcast yeah 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 i don't i don't know what i was thinking it just kind of bulldozed it just kind of came over me right it chose you yeah, exactly, david it exactly. chose you it's especially bad though when like i can't breathe out of my nose so breathing and speaking so at the same sorry. time are a little bit interesting um <laughs> But uh, and then also thinking at the same time, it's like one one of those three things can't happen. So half the time thinking is the one that goes out the window. You don't have enough oxygen going to your brain. (laughs) So so head over to Facebook and search the group if you haven't joined us already. There's lots of great conversation. Uh, We got a couple polls we're gonna put up, some things like that. And I should say that we have we are gonna have a mock up of the close reads mug coming soon. Graham and I figured out what it's going to say, so we sent off the that to the designer, and they're going to send us some, or to the to the you know distributor, the manufacturer, and they're going to send us some mock-ups of that, and then we're going to have those for sale Ooh, in the coming. That is so suit, exciting! Yeah, they're going to be really cool. Hand hand, what do you call it? Hands hands, not hand spun. Hand thrown or hand, something. Hand thrown, yeah, hand thrown uh, mugs. They're going to be really cool. Um, so we'll have those for sale, and that will. Um, Help us also produce more content and also give you something to uh, celebrate your love of close reads. So I know I'm like just imagining everybody like around the podcast with their book and their mug. And oh, we should make this thing where everybody takes a picture of themselves with the mug in the book and puts it on the Facebook page. Yeah, we definitely should do that. So uh, we thought Graham and I were trying to figure out what to say on it. So we're at lunch coming up with ideas. And so this is what we're going to do. It's going to say close reads. 
and then it, that's gonna be big on like a seal, and then around the edge of the seal, it's gonna say um, something like a podcast, a book club podcast for the incurable reader. <laughs> that's great. <clears throat> we were coming up. We thought incorrigible, but that's a little mean. <laughs> <laughs> So, Yet somehow appropriate. <laughs> yeah, so, but incurable seems to fit the in, oh, for the incurable great. reader. So yeah, those will be out soon. We'll post pictures of those on uh, on Facebook and allow people to to pre order those. What we're going to do is do a pre order so that we can collect some of that money before we have to place the order because they're not real cheap. Um, so if we oh, collect sure, yeah. if we collect the money as pre orders, then when they come in, we'll ship them out, and um, that will make sure that we can order enough for you know kind of and also allows us to get an idea of how many we need to order. Um, it's kind of we're not sure exactly, you know exactly how much interest there is the first time. So that that'll just give us a sense of that. So, and then also head over to iTunes. Make sure you have uh, subscribed. Make sure you either subscribe to the to the Close Reads feed as well as the the Thirsty Podcast Network feed. And of course, as always, thanks so much for listening to Close Reads here on the Thirsty Institute Podcast Network. For Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh and all of us here at Thirsty, I'm David Kern. We'll talk to you next time when we talk about the enduring chill. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.